Sickleby essentially us making a park for a day. And if we learn anything in the last 18 months, parks are incredibly important, incredibly healthy spaces during crises like this. The safety stop would allow bicyclists to yield or treat stop signs as yields when it was safe to do so? It's a mixed bill. On biking and walking, we did do really well. We saw a 70% increase. For the first time, we saw dedicated funding for biking and walking safety. Got $5 billion for basically Vision Zero plans. Another thing this bill says is that if you're building a new bridge or you're rehabbing a bridge, you have to make sure that there's access for people biking and walking. Screaming is important, calls attention to me as a cyclist or as a vulnerable road user. I yell door every time, even when I can avoid safely and easily, because I want drivers to imprint it in their brains that they need to think about these things and look for people on bikes every time they park on the street. Bike Talk, 10 years running now, or more, right, Nick? Wow. Well, I'm, I haven't been with it that long, but Nick here is the anchor, the man who's archived pretty much years, decades of bike history. That's true. On the KPFK live stream here. So my name is Don Ward. This is my co-host, Nick, Nick Richard. We have a great lineup, as usual, on Bike Talk. We have with us today... Farai Bain, the chief strategist of Ciclavia, formerly a transportation commissioner, and now you're with Rec and Parks. Welcome to the show. That's correct. Always happy to be here, guys. I love the format. It's kind of nice doing it on Zoom, actually. We don't have to be in the KPFK dungeon. So before Tafari, we have Jared from Calbike, Jared Sanchez. Hey, Jared. Uh, you're going to give us a Calbike minute? Yeah, I can certainly do. I've been on the show before, maybe once. Good to be with you all again. I am the policy advocate at CalBike. If you don't know, a statewide bike advocacy organization work on a variety of issues. I lead a couple of our ongoing legislative campaigns, two of which I wanted to spend maybe a minute talking about, and I'm available for any questions as well. The first is AB 122, authored by Tasha Borner Horvath out in the San Diego area. It's also known as the safety stop or in other states or around the country, the Idaho stop, which would allow bicyclists to yield or treat stop signs as yields when it was safe to do so. And at this point, the bill is about to be before the governor to get his signature. But before that, we need to cross one more hurdle in the state Senate on the Senate floor, they call it, which is the final vote among all the senators, all 40 of them. So that's going to be happening as soon as next week or as late as three and a half weeks from now or so. So I would love to get support from all your listeners and of course, anybody listening around that bill, if you're excited about it or can reach out more to me if you want to learn more or get involved on it. I can stop there for a question or I can move to the second campaign. Well, you know what? I do have one question. There's this recall that's happening with Gavin Newsom. Now, this guy vetoed this complete streets bill or whatever that policy change was, was going to be for Caltrans. He vetoed that after that went through the California state legislature, which was, I know that's a big pain in the ass to get through that legislature. And he vetoed that. What kind of leverage are you guys using right now on Newsom to sign this bill where you're saying, look, you didn't support us before. Are you going to support us on this? And if not, maybe we don't care if you get recalled. What's up? <laughs> well, when is the bike lobby going to get gangster? 
<laughs> That's a good question. And I mean, you may not like what I have to say here, but as staff and hopefully we'll see our board will approve is that Cal Bike wants to not endorse Gavin Newsom per se, but say no to the recall. Certainly things could not be helpful for any of us if he's recalled. And yeah, he hasn't been a big supporter given the veto you're talking about. And that was a big loss, of course, as you know, we get attached to our bills. But you know, this bill is different for a lot of reasons. I agree with the bill. I'm only talking about somehow flexing a little bit of muscle, the little that we have. You know, these guys want to get endorsed by everybody. Yeah. Let's do some horse trading. Everybody else does. Why don't we do horse trading? Anyways, let's go to the second one, the Cal Bike Minute. Real quick. Second one is the jaywalking repeal, also known as AB 1238 or the Freedom to Walk Act. This one isn't doing as well as a safety stop. It doesn't have bipartisan support. It barely passed out of its last committee. And we're getting a lot of concerns, as expected, around safety issues, whether we're making it more unsafe for people if we're removing enforcement or laws that are on the books. So we're really lobbying hard, of course, the governor, but also the Appropriations Committee, which right now it's where it's stuck at. And it could die within the next seven days if it doesn't get out of that committee. So need your help on that, too, if you have a senator on that committee. Um, but things aren't looking too great at this point, but still trying to be optimistic. All right. Thank you for the update, Jared. You know what? I like this. The cow bike minute. Thank you so yeah, much. Don't get me in trouble with the, the elected officials next time with your questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care, man. No, no problem. Thank you. All right. We're flipping back now. We got Tafari Bain, who is here to tell us about Ciclavia and the ride that's coming on Sunday. Yes? Or am I totally tripping? Yes, of course. And anything else you want to know? But I'm an open book to you guys. Oh, you shouldn't okay. say. So it's happening in Wilmington, right? It's a yeah. two-mile route. 2.25. Two and Ciclavia hasn't been happening. It's been over a year, right? Yeah, it's, it's been, been a long over. 18 months. I've counted yeah. every day of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do we have to wear masks? We encourage mask wearing all over the event. And obviously, by public policy, you have to wear masks going into any businesses. So all of our marketing and reminding folks to make sure to bring their mask and remind them that they have to use them inside businesses. And we're going to be giving out masks at the event, free masks. And, you know, obviously, oh, awesome. if you happen to have a little extra cash and you want to support a nonprofit, we have nice Ciclavia branded masks if you want to add a Ciclavia mask to your collection. And then we also are going to have a pop up vaccination clinics for any folks who might need to get their second shot, get their first shot, and have decided, you know, they can come to Ciclavia and go ahead and get their vaccination stuff moving along. So that's amazing. That's great. So, you know, I think Ciclavia has always been about health, providing opportunities to make more healthy decisions about our life, right? Like I can ride my bike freely in the street, I can walk down the street freely and hang out with my family and friends. You know, and these are just adding to that mindfulness about how we like to promote healthy living, all the wearing masks and vaccinations and ensuring that we're taking care of each other right now is all part of that. And it's being an outdoor event, basically essentially us making a park for a day. And if we learn anything in the last 18 months, parks are incredibly important, incredibly healthy spaces during even crises like this. There's a lot of outdoor activity happening during the pandemic, and we managed to get our numbers very much under control with no vaccinations available, right? So Ciclavia is just making another park for a day. This is not a concert and not a festival like a lot of the other things going on. We particularly believe in what we're doing and its ability to be a healthy space for folks right now. Ciclavia has been so influential in Los Angeles. It's just fantastic. So it's great to have it back. And Wilmington, they need it. 
I love that Ciclavia travels around the, the metro area and visits these neighborhoods. I don't remember the last time I was in Wilmington. Yeah, let's talk about Wilmington. Yeah, tell us about some of the things along the route. Of course, Wilmington as a community is a beautiful neighborhood right at the gateway to the city in a lot of ways, right at the port. You know, half of the country's goods come through that port. And so Wilmington is part of that ecosystem and it's a beautiful community with lots of history and really unique things like the Civil War Museum right next to Banning Park. There was Civil War issues in California, right? Like I never, I didn't even think of like the Civil War reached over here. I didn't even think, I remember finding out about this museum for the first time and realizing there was a real fear that California would secede from the Union in a Southern kind of state. And so they totally was an army garrison here for that purpose of protecting this during the Civil War. So it's really those kind of unique things really I think help widen our idea of what Los Angeles is, right? Why I love when we get to go to neighborhoods that seem a little off the beaten path, but it's really a a community that people call home and really reflects the beauty of Los Angeles. And like I said, Sigma is rebuilding a park for a day. Like you said, at Wilmington, there's two beautiful parks that happen to cap this route, but adding more recreational space is always a huge benefit to neighborhoods that are very urban, very concrete neighborhoods. And particularly when the streets tend to be so unsafe, in general, I think people really don't think about what it means to your neighborhood. Even if you have a park in it, your ability to walk to that park or to bike to that park safely, that park doesn't feel accessible to you anymore. And you could live four blocks from a park and I'll bet people are like, I don't walk to that park, it's too far in Los Angeles. And I think that, that right, right. creating that safe space is a huge benefit to communities like Wilmington. Well, right on, man. So we're going to see you out there on the bike as well or are you going to be walking it happens to be in 2.25 miles very walkable route this time yeah but i'm going to be on my bike as usual i'm excited you know wilmington's our first one there's a reason why we announced all three we wanted to make sure folks knew that there's going to be options coming up you don't have to necessarily go to the first event out the gate you can go to the october event if it feels better for you right now the october is going to be downtown la it's going to be our birthday event it's going to be a longer route so there's going to be some options we are south la route also announced what date is the october one just october 10th It'll be okay. downtown LA, you know, like 10-10, our first event. Oh, yeah, first there. one, yeah. So it happens to be October 10th. Is, we're back there. So we said it's, a, it's our, and we didn't get to our 20th last year. So awesome. It, you know, it's, it's nice to look back on our past 36 events now and think about all the places we've been. But I'm also excited about places we're planning on going because we still have new neighborhoods to visit. And I'm excited about that too. Okay. So we go to org for more information. And Sunday, it's happening, what, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m.? Yep, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Avalon down in Wilmington. You can hop on our website and catch the map, Wilmington. And, yeah, we'll be there till 4 p.m. Free for everybody. Awesome. If you've never been there before, you don't have to have a bike. You can come walk. You can come just skate. You can just hang out. You know, we'll be happy to have you out. And the neighborhood will be happy to see you. Thanks for coming on, Safari. We appreciate you giving us the update, and we want to have you back anytime. Thank you. No worries. I hope to see everybody this weekend. All right. This week, the U.S. Senate passed an infrastructure bill that was more of the same for highway funding, which I guess is disappointing in ways for folks. But we're going we're gonna to talk to an expert on what's been going on. Karen Whitaker, she is the Deputy Executive Director for the League of American Cyclists. And uh, we're glad to have you back. We had you on before the vote to talk about this with some folks. And now we're going to get your opinion on what went down and what we got and what maybe wasn't so good. Give us the rundown, Karen. Welcome to the show. Sure. And thanks for having me. So what the Senate passed this week is a transportation bill that has historic amounts of funding for transit, 
historic amounts of funding for biking and walking, but as you mentioned, also historic amounts of money for road building. So it's a mixed bill. On biking and walking, we did do really well. We saw a 70% increase on transportation alternatives, which is our biggest funding program. For the first time, we saw dedicated funding for biking and walking safety. So we could go from basically about 1% of the safety funding to about 10%. So that's a big jump nationwide. Got $5 billion for basically Vision Zero plans to write them and then implement them. So all of that is great. Well, let me ask you this really quick. You mentioned that highways got a lot of funding. Is it like if they build roads and highways and bridges, can there be local policy that dictates that there must be a complete street design for upgrading this highway or whatever they're going to do with that money? Are we saying that when they make that decision, the money comes out of the other part of the budget? Or can they stripe in bike lanes and do things with that highway money if we pass the right kind of policies locally? Yeah, that's a great question. They absolutely can do all those things with highway money. And the bill funds states and requires states to come up with complete street standards. So that is a move forward, but we're going to have to push at the federal level, the USDOT to really stay on states to make sure they do that. But there's a lot of power at the state and local level to say, hey, you created these standards. Why aren't you building to them? Another thing this bill says is that if you're building a new bridge or you're rehabbing a bridge, you have to make sure that there's access for people biking and walking. That's not cost prohibitive or there's some sort of language around there about cost. And so that's another thing that could go either way. We'll work at the federal level to try to get Buttigieg's DOT to say, this is what we mean. This is the benefit cost analysis you have to do. But the local level, being able to say, hey, we know you're supposed to do this. Why aren't you doing it? Could help ensure that when there is new roads built, when there is new bridges or bridges repaired, that they're built for everybody. Is there like a calendar system nationwide that could be monitored for these type of projects where we could organize around making some phone calls and emails whenever there's some sort of project coming up? I mean, is there some kind of organization like that that would enable that like here in los angeles we got this great organization streets for all they send an email with every little policy thing and you just click a button and like you email the entire list of politicians it's actually pretty good so it'd be great to do that nationally so we do that for federal policy and you can sign up on our website so the next stage will be pushing the usdot to make good decisions one of the interesting things in this bill is that secretary Buttigieg is going to have over $100 billion. It's more like $120 billion of grants to give out that his DOT gets to write the criteria. I mean, there's some guidelines from Congress, but they can also say, hey, we want to make sure that there's access for people biking and walking. If you want to get a bridge grant, you have to show us there's access for people biking and walking. If you want to get a raise grant, it used to be Tiger Grants or whatever, it needs to be a complete streets project. So So right now we need to be hammering at but it is asking him nicely to recognize bikes yeah. and walking, making policy that's friendly for that. That's kind of, that's what you guys are doing. We can sign up for this and hit him with emails. Great. Yeah. I mean, it'll be a little more once the bill passes the house mm-hmm. that it falls into his hands, but absolutely. But also at the state and local level, you can do the same thing. Every state has a plan that says what projects they're prioritizing. And so pushing to make sure that those have biking and walking access in them is possible. In California, there's a California Bicycle Coalition. 
they've been really pushing hard for complete streets at the state level. Yeah, we just had Jared Sanchez on from CalBike to give us the CalBike Minute on some bills that are coming up that are very promising. Yeah, so that's the next step if this gets through the House. The way that the funding works, it's not that the states get a whole bunch of money in a bank account. They build a project and then they have to bill USDOT for reimbursement. So DOT can say, in order to get reimbursed, you have to do these things. So that's our next step is to really push DOT to set guidance for states that is gets us closer to where we wanted the bill to get us originally. What's the outlook on that? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're saying all the right things. Right now, Buttigieg has been really focused on getting this bill through. So, for instance, there was the executive order on equity, and we know that they're doing department-wide trainings on equity. We know that they have a task force led by a bunch of appointees, but including a lot of the civil servants. They're working on that. They ask for advice on methodology. We see them moving through the things they said they would, at least for that executive order. We see a real focus on safety. So they had to reestablish the Office of Civil Rights, but they've done that. They've given them authority. They're trying to take the lid off of staff to let them do what they know how to do. So there's still a lot they could be doing that we haven't seen yet. A lot of the vehicle safety stuff they could just do. They don't need Congress to tell them to do it. But I also think he's still been staffing up. So we'll watch the next couple of months to see how those things go. But once this bill comes out, it's going to really be go time on you've said all this great stuff. Now we want to see the action behind it. One thing I guess the League of American Bicyclists is looking at is there's a political calculation going on about this is not an exciting bill for a lot of people, but it is exciting in some ways, like you mentioned, safety. And the yeah. uh, idea is you can't go all the way in one direction because then what if it goes in the other direction? Yeah, that's part of it. It's also, is this a good bill compared to what? I mean, we'd like to say, you know, if you were just looking at this on its own, you might say, well, it's better not to have anything. But the reality is there's going to be a transportation bill passed. And if it's not this Congress, it's going to happen next Congress. And I think it's fair to say that Democrats are more in line with the progressive community than Republicans. Not completely, not exactly where everyone wants them to be. But next Congress, if we have a Republican-controlled House, it's not going to be the INVEST Act that we saw from Peter DeFazio. And we actually saw this happen back in 2009. There was a Democratic trifecta. Democrats controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House. It was time for a transportation bill. The House wrote their bill. It was a fairly progressive bill. It wasn't the Invest Act, but it was a fairly progressive bill. And on the day that we were all showed up to hear about it, the Obama administration shut it down and said, hey, we can't do this right now. Hold off. We'll do it two years from now. Well, then what happened? We saw the, the Tea Party came in and the Republicans took over the House. What the House tried to do then was cut biking and walking and transit completely out of the highway trust fund, so completely out of the funding. Now, we got that back through the Senate, but the 2012 bill was a lot worse than the bill we see on the table now. So it's a long way of saying it's not just do we want this bill or no bill, it's do we want this bill or do we want a bill that we're going to get in two years and roll the dice on who's in Congress. Totally understand. I think also... It sounds hopeful to me that you could take highway funding to build complete streets. That's kind of a game changer in my mind. What is the money that's going to biking and walking? What kind of projects does that fund that the highway bill doesn't fund? 
it's not that they don't fund it. The transportation alternatives, which is where a lot of the bike money comes from, that money is for local governments. The idea is to get a little bit of the funding money down to local governments to do local priorities. And there's a bunch of uses. It just so happens 96 to 98% of it goes to biking and walking that that's what local governments are prioritizing. So that's a little bit of the difference between local governments and states too. So I'm kind of wondering like, okay, eventually the money comes from the federal all the way down to the local, right? There is money that comes through for roads and bridges and things like that. It's confusing. Most of the money goes to the state. And then the state is supposed to consult with the local governments on what gets funded. There's a small amount that goes to the metro regions. And then there's some grants that local governments can apply for, for like biking and walking. Okay. But yeah, it's a very state controlled process. And I think a lot of us would like to see more of that money get to the local governments who are closer to the people using those streets. Gotcha. Okay. There's always this big debate about local control versus state control you know, bridges and some of the roads here that Caltrans owns. So just curious about that. I had a question to change the subject a little bit, but still on the bill. Is there anything in the bill that affects autonomous vehicles? You know, I'm seeing stories and news items about autonomous vehicles hit a pedestrian. And there's always the question of, you know, if an autonomous vehicle can choose between the driver and the pedestrian, who gets killed? You know, there's that question. There's the who's liable question. Like, does this bill have any kind of effect on that? Very little. I'm there, stuff about when you're building the actual roads, Are they built in a way that the AVs will see them? The original Biden plan, the American Jobs Plan, had more on that. There's a separate bill that folks have been trying to get through Congress to regulate automated vehicles, but it does not have the safety provisions we would like to see. So we've been pushing that any AV that's sold should be able to detect and respond to people biking, walking, using a wheelchair, and it should be a federal standard. Yes, And the manufacturers are really pushing back hard against that. And there's also reports that they see white people better than people of color. So it's like that inequity compounded again. And we've been saying we need a vision test for cars that can detect and respond to vulnerable road users of all races and ethnicities. Yeah, that would seem like priority one, considering uh, that's going to be the future, I guess, autonomous vehicles. Whenever I see the models that they show of how autonomous vehicles are going to navigate intersections and how amazing it is, I'm like, throw some pedestrians and bike riders on this model and let's, let's see what happens then. And yeah. uh, they never have it in there. So, If you ever see those ads for cars that show the cars stopping for a kid in a crosswalk, the AAA Foundation has studied that. It's called automatic emergency braking. And they found that 20 miles an hour, it only works 11% of the time to stop for a child. So again, there's no federal standards. That's one of the things that this bill will help create, or at least get started, is creating those standards. So when you're buying a car, it says it has that. You don't know how good it is. And that's a basic thing you should be able to do. I'm imagining myself as a crotchety old man on a bridge over a freeway with a beach ball. I'm just going to toss it into traffic and laugh maniacally. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hopefully it'll stop for the beach ball, the traffic, but probably not, right? I, I mean, that was one of the, when there was that crash in Tempe, Arizona, that mm. killed a pedestrian, that was one of the problems is they felt like the technology was too sensitive 
So they had changed the dial so it wouldn't stop for everything in the road. Oh, my God. How stupid. Um, so, yeah. It was a few years ago now, it might have been 2018, but Google had a contest out that if you could build a system that could tell the difference between a bicycle and a bird and could do so for, I think it was 60 or 90 days, you could win hundreds of thousands of dollars. A bicycle or a... Bird. Or a bird. Okay. So it's just not there yet. Yeah, I do not trust that they're going to have our interests in mind. I'm assuming that the League of American Bicyclists is monitoring the situation. Yeah. And my colleague, Ken McLeod, is on top of it with talking with the companies and getting involved. Is there a way we can get on a list to hear the issues? Do you guys put that out on the mailing list? Yeah. On our blog, if you just search for automated vehicles. Okay, cool. I want to get into that because it's scary to me. They already don't recognize us in a lot of ways. I'm feeling like that's going to be an issue in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think if technology is tested to see people biking, walking, using wheelchairs, then it could be really good for us. Absolutely. Yeah. The companies are going to study what's on the test, which is why we need a federal standard on their ability to see us. Okay. Awesome. Anything else in the transportation bill? How's public transit doing? I would imagine Amtrak got some money, right? Like because of Joe Biden. Yeah. Rail in general got 11 times what it usually gets. So great. That's great. Transit definitely got a bounce too. One of the interesting things I'll say is there's the physical infrastructure bill and then there's the human infrastructure that's going to cover childcare and two-year college and those things. There is some room in there as well for climate-related transportation. So we think like a bicycle commuter benefit, a refundable tax credit to buy an e-bike, maybe vouchers to help low-income folks buy an e-bike, things to address the urban heat island effect, things to address flooding on streets again in some areas. So there's some possibility there as well. Awesome. Yeah, I was wondering why they don't give you a benefit for just a straight bicycle and riding it to work. They're going to do an e-bike. This, that's cool. But it's like, you know, you're incentivizing this so, thing that needs to be manufactured and bicycles. Why can't we incentivize those? So the federal government argument for that is that there's precedent for subsidizing the commute trip, but not the other trips. And that in the U.S., pedal bikes are mostly used for recreation, where e-bikes, a larger percentage of that is used for transportation and commuting. So that's the reasoning. but the thought is if we can get an e-bike benefit in there, we can build from that. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. You're making it simpler to understand what's going on with these bills because they're so complicated, but thanks for explaining it to us and appreciate having you on the show. We want to get you back on and talk some more about the goings of the day regarding transportation in the future and any kind of bills that you want to get on our radar on our listeners. We'd love to have you on. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care. That was Karen Whittaker, Deputy Executive Director for the League of American Cyclists. Thank you. So this is somebody that I saw on Twitter who tweeted a pretty, I mean, I don't know if I want to say viral, but it was a quote that had a lot of comments on it. And this is Julie Huntington, and she had a tweet about uh, what she does when she approaches cars in the door zone. Hi, Julie. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're a uh, professor? 
Yeah, I'm a professor of uh, language and literatures. Language and literature arts? Yeah, so it's complicated. I have a PhD in French and Francophone literature, but I teach classes in French and then in English and world literatures and writing. So it's a long journey, not necessarily a bike talk journey. (laughs) We we always talk about, we talk about everything here. It's okay. the, The idea now is that it's from the perspective of a cyclist Oh, it could be about anything. We want to hear it. Sorry, yeah, I mean, I, I bike commute to work. I've been bike commuting since I was in elementary school. So I love riding my bike. Awesome. Uh, yeah. I'm looking at this tweet here. And you're saying, as a cyclist, I have trained myself to scream when I see car doors flinging open in my path. It's a loud, deep, guttural bellow. It's jarring, and people often react by pulling the door closed. Hell Yeah. Um, thankfully it worked today and it made it to work alive and injured. So can we hear it? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a really, um, Loud. Like an instinctual, yeah, it's an instinctual thing. I don't know. Like it comes out and it's something that I had to work to do. Cause I think my initial impulse early on was to gasp and to hold it in. But I think just through time, I realized the screaming is important. It not only calls attention to me as a cyclist or as a vulnerable road user, but it also calls attention to inattentive or distracted drivers, the people who are flinging their doors open. But most importantly, it calls attention to people in the area. And those are witnesses who may be able to advocate for me if, you know, I get knocked down and I lose consciousness or am critically injured. Too many times cyclists are blamed for their own injuries and their own deaths. And so it's really important to get people on the scene involved in what's happening as it's happening. Because once you lose control of the official narrative, what really happened, you or your loved ones have to fight to regain control of the truth. That's a brutal reality. Yeah, it's like when the police come to take a report, it's like nine times out of 10, they blame the cyclist to the media. Whatever reporter is on the scene, like the cop will put the blame on the cyclist. But when you get into the weeds of what happened, it's like, uh, no, that was actually the driver's fault. But now that it's already been put out there, it's going to be difficult to reverse that narrative and people just in the back of their head hear these stories and they just will blame cyclists when in fact they're not the ones that are at fault. Like getting doored is the driver's fault. They're the ones that are responsible for the insurance and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another complication, right? Like I'm in New York city and I'm sure it's comparable in other places, but try getting a New York city police officer to write a police report for a car dooring. Really? What area of... Oh. I live in Queens and I commute to work okay. in Manhattan. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, New York police, I'll bet you probably don't even take a report unless there's like a death or something. It's really a problem, especially because a lot of people don't know the importance of having a crash report if they are injured. In an instance, like a Doring, for example, people don't always think, you know, to call and, and get a report filed. But the worst part is, is if you have an officer show up on the scene, sometimes they decline to file a report or they make it very difficult to file a report. Is it like in Los Angeles, you can demand that they file a report or ask for their commanding officer and they have to, if you demand it, they do make it difficult. They try to talk you out of it. Is it sort of the same way in New York? You have the right to, but they just are talking you out of it and that kind of thing or... Can they really just deny you? This is a great question. And I think it's something that I need to look into so that I know what my rights are as a cyclist. 
Gotcha. Okay. I've had a lot of friends go down in like hit and runs and the police won't take a report or they won't come to the scene and we're going to the police station and helping people demand that a report get done. It's so crazy. On one side, I guess there's just not a lot of funding for for taking traffic reports and stuff. They kind of consider it to be like a private matter more so, I guess, not like so much of a criminal matter. Yeah, that's definitely a huge problem. I know in New York State, the transportation alternatives and Families for Safe Streets have been trying to push forward a slot of eight different legislative bills. It's the Crash Victim Bill of Rights and Safety Act. Unfortunately, the measures got stuck in gridlock in the state legislature. But one of the laws that was being proposed was to give crash victims a victim's advocate that would be comparable to crime victim advocate, even if criminal charges aren't filed against the driver. That's still being tied up and negotiated. Hopefully it will go through in the next legislative session, but there's a lot of work to do on that end. That's interesting you brought that up. That that reminds me of our right to have a defense lawyer, the right to representation in court. You're using a public designed public street that they're really liable for all the crashes that happen. And they need to design a better street. Shouldn't we have an advocate or some kind of lawyer on our side to... Yeah, because a lot of people don't know what to do. And so only when alcohol is not involved in the crash, very few, I don't know the exact percentage, but I think it's only like 2% of drivers ever face any kind of criminal consequences or charges. So the system is set up to really push people who have been injured or killed to pursue civil recourse instead of criminal recourse. It's a problem. You got like, what, 56 retweets? Is that common occurrence? Or do you measure it in likes? No, I look at Twitter sometimes as shouting into a void. So I find it coincidental that a tweet about me shouting into traffic and <laughs> is the tweet that got retweeted. Hey, so we got away from the original tweet, but I wanted to introduce our next guest, who's Sharon Bennett, and she quoted the tweet and also generated some comments. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Thanks for coming on. Do you want to read yours, Sharon? Oh, sure. I yell door every time, even when I can avoid safely and easily, because I want drivers to imprint it in their brains that they need to think about these things and look for people on bikes every time they park on the street. And that's not to say that I yell door at every car. It's just whenever I see a door even inching open, even if I can avoid it, I think it's good to get the sense memory in other people's ears that they're doing something potentially dangerous, potentially life-threatening. Service. You're doing a service. <laughs> I try. The door has to be opening slightly or... I mean, they could be sitting there with the door open. They could be opening it, but yeah. Yeah, I do a yo, yo, yo. So I do it really loud. I'm just like, yo, yo, yo. I don't want it to seem like I'm screaming at them or trying to be violent or in any way because <laughs> like, I've had like bad experiences yelling and people are like, ah, and it turns into something. So I'm just like, I just have the yo, yo, yo. And it's scary, but a lot of times I'm trying to take the lane, but it's really hard because the cars are fast out here and it gets freaky. So you're always kind of near the door zone or in the door zone sometimes, but I, I try to stay out of the door zone. Yeah. And I was thinking like context, you know, when I put the tweet out, I realized with a tweet, you don't really get the full context or the full streetscape. 
the situation that I was in, it was 9.30 a.m. I was getting ready to meet my students in Central Park for an outdoor lesson. I was driving my bike on 102nd Street between Fifth Avenue and Madison, which is like a half a block from Central Park, the entrance. There's not a bike lane there right now, but there's one that's being proposed. It has not been approved, but most of the crosstown bike lanes in Manhattan are just paint, so they don't offer any kind of protection anyway. The road was being milled, so I was driving, I would say driving, pedaling uh, slower than I would normally go. I mean, the road was bumpy and grooved. There was a car that was parked legally, a box truck that was illegally parked next to it with a hazard on And then there was also like a car that pulled in to a no standing zone. And that was a car that flung its door open. So it was just like a lot of illegal behaviors to contend with. I felt like I had enough room to go around it. Like I had enough room and enough time. And I don't know if you as cyclists also have these experiences of just like a really acute mindfulness when you're moving. You're calculating like seconds and microseconds of other people's movements It could be trucks, cars, cyclists, pedestrians. You're anticipating everyone's next moves because often people don't communicate this in an obvious or overt or clear way. So you see that hint of movement as a door starts to open. And with the driver, there's really no hesitation. They're just flinging it open. And so for me also, there's no hesitation. That's when I scream and I don't know what's behind me. So when I'm in that situation, I keep steady. I don't veer. It's a calculated risk. I'd rather risk hitting the door and the motorist than like veer into a situation that I don't know what's coming up behind me. Again, fortunately in this situation, I keep moving and I make it, but it's just so dangerous. People can get hurt or get killed that way by that moment of inattention, just by someone not looking. Yeah, totally. And I, so I'm in LA and so most of my door yelling happens on sunset, uh, which has a bike lane that is just completely a door lane and the traffic's right on you. I'm usually riding with my partner or with other people. So a lot of times this yelling door is to also alert the people that I'm riding with that, hey, there might be somebody about to open their door and watch out. I try not to yell a lot while I'm riding. I also fear the reactions of drivers and stuff. So I'm generally not shouting as much as driver behavior would warrant. But I feel like just saying door, it's not swearing at a person. It's just stating a fact of what's going on. And I feel like it's worthwhile. I like the idea also of calling it, even though you may be outside the door zone, but calling it anyways, I do that. Like if I see a door opening, I stay out of the door zone if I can. But when I see it opening, even if I'm clear, I'll just be like, you know, either door or yo, yo, yo. It it helps drivers see you. Yeah. And to hopefully think the next time they are touching their door on a street that they have to think about their door. There were some other respondents too, like when people were talking about the really loud car horn. That was one that I remember. Did you notice any of the other comments on the thread, either of you? Julia or Sharon? For me, like everything's happening so fast. I mean, it's microseconds, right? So if you have to let that sound out as soon as you see that movement, otherwise it's too late, right? And for me, like that extra microsecond, it takes me to reach for the horn when I can shout from my own body and it's there, the response is immediate. I don't have to move my hand 
I mean, that would require another kind of neuromuscular training. It's probably effective for a lot of people, but, um, you know, everyone's got to find their own way of signaling to other people that, hey, this is really dangerous. Somebody said they scream like they're actually dying. Somebody said that they had just done that and the driver yelled at them. Are you serious? Oh, that was me. (laughs) Oh, that was you? Yeah, it was crazy because then, of course, like I arrived, you know, I make it to Central Park and we're having a heat wave right now. So I gave myself some extra time so I could hydrate and make myself presentable for my students. But of course, I had to tell them, I was like, oh, my goodness, like this just happened. And, you know, I try to be, you know, normally I try to keep it chill. You know, I usually if it's a pedestrian, we'll say like heads up. But I think it's very different with drivers, right? Like when you're dealing with other cyclists or pedestrians, the risk involved of serious injury or death is a lot smaller. Whereas if you're coming up against a car or a truck that has a capacity to crush and kill you, I think it's okay to scream and to alert people like, hey, you're driving a deadly weapon around, like be responsible with it. So I don't apologize for making my voice loud. So Sharon, we're going to do an episode, I think next Friday, about the sunset bike lane, the protected lane, if you want to come on. Because if you ride that, you might have thoughts about it. You know the one they're trying to put in? Yeah, I do. Um, I hope they can make it happen. I think it's a good section of the city for it and would get a lot more people on bikes on the east side, for sure. Um, you have Rock Miller, the guy who's designing it. He's supposedly a hotshot bike lane designer. Big in the world of bike lane design. That's a deep nerd bike stuff there. <laughs> and Julie, we'd love to have you on again, too. I'm happy to come on and talk bikes. I love riding my bike, and I also love advocating for traffic safety. Cool. Perfect. Do we put your Twitter handles out there? Do you guys want people to follow you? Because we'll put it out there. It's going to be huge. Get ready. Huge, yeah. Are you ready for the barrage? I'll I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Your Twitter handle, Sharon, is S-Y-B-B-Y-S. Okay, let's pronounce that correctly. How do you tell people your Twitter handle? It's just S-Y-B-B-Y-S. I spell it out. It's my initial. Okay. And then Julie Huntington, you are J-A Huntington on Twitter. Keeping it simple. It's good to have you guys on the show. We'll have you back on. We always like to talk to cyclists around the country. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having us. This was really great to talk about riding bikes. Right on. Thanks, guys. Bye. All right. This has been Bike Talk on KPFK Livestream. Now on Zoom, because we're still up in this COVID shit. I'm your host, Don Ward. This is Nick Reshare. Bye. listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is biketalkpfk. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 